All right, well, the topic of our message today is entitled, Not Alone. This is a topical message this morning that we're fitting into the book, our series in the book of Acts, Not Alone. Well, loneliness, it's a funny thing. It's not always about being alone. Oftentimes, it's about feeling alone. You can live in relative solitude and not feel alone. You can live among throngs of people and yet feel alone. What's the difference? It's relationships, life-giving relationships. When it comes to living the Christian life, we can also feel alone, can't we? When it comes to living out our faith in a world which is indifferent, or even hostile to the gospel. When faced with our own sin, in the seemingly never-ending battle with our sin and failures, we can feel alone. So the question is this, church, how do we deal with our loneliness? I thought out of a bit of curiosity, I would go to one of those e-how sites on the internet and type in, How to Battle or Deal with Loneliness. And this is what I was told. Keep yourself busy. Right? Next, get a dog. I thought, wow, my my wife and kids have been asking me for a dog. Are they lonely? I just had that thought. I was reading that. Get a dog. Okay. Next, use an online friendship matchmaking website. Fair, but beware. And now lastly, I did not see this one coming. Just did not see it coming. Find an imaginary friend. (laughs) I'm going to quote from you the comment after this suggestion. Quote, yes, it's childish, but sometimes they can help you out. They won't become mean. They won't hurt you. They won't break up with you. They will only do... (laughs) What you want them to do. So find an imaginary friend right there from Wiki How To on the internet. All right. Well, insightful regarding regarding our culture, but not helpful. Church, we are living, as we have often referred to, in an age of the already but not yet. That is, the time between Christ's first coming and his return. But we have not been left alone. We have been given a life-giving relationship with the Holy Spirit. And he's not imaginary. He's real. And there's a match that he wants to make. We're going to talk about this match made in heaven this morning as we seek to understand and experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Why? That you may know that you are not alone. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the very truths about which we are about to hear. 
But Lord, my heart this morning is that we would just not talk about the work and the person of the Holy Spirit, but that we would, even as this word is preached, experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we're not just seeking that cerebral knowledge alone this morning. We want to experience your work. We want to know of your work. We want to know that you are here, that we are not alone as we wait your physical return and the consummation of your kingdom, that you have not left us as orphans. So Lord, impress that truth upon us, even now, as we study your word, as we look to you, O Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, originally, this sermon was to be, as I mentioned, a topical sermon, and it still is, but this sermon was to follow the sermons that are about to take place on Pentecost, Acts 2. Well, couple of storm Isaac and the cancellation of our Sunday service changed all that, and I'm trusting the Lord with that. So in the following weeks, Alvin Bentley will be helping us understand Pentecost, Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, in redemptive historical terms, in salvation historical terms. In other words, they're going to help us understand Pentecost by understanding God's master plan. Pentecost, promise fulfilled. But my focus this morning is a little different. My aim is to show you the significance of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, in primarily personal terms. That is, how are we to understand, relate to, and experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit as believers? Why? Because I believe among Christians, there seems to be a lot of confusion, or at least fuzziness, when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and our experience of Him. So I'm coming this morning. I'm coming as a learner, and I'm coming with a burden. And it's this, to understand and experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Point one, to understand the Holy Spirit as a person, as a person. You see, the Holy Spirit, he isn't an it. Have you ever referred to him as an it? I know I have. He's not an it. He's a he. The Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force or influence. The Holy Spirit is not the force in Star Wars. May the force be with you. No. And even though the Hebrew and Greek word for spirit could be interpreted breath or wind, the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit is not some elusive, non-committal presence. Here for a moment, then gone. Gone like the wind. The Holy Spirit is a person. That takes a little explaining to do, doesn't it? We read in Scripture that the Holy Spirit hears, speaks, witnesses, convinces, glorifies, leads, guides, teaches, commands, forbids, and desires. That which could only be said of a person. 
But he's not a human person. He's not human. For he is God. He is one being with God, one being with God the Father and God the Son, yet he is his own distinct person. That's something far different, isn't it, from our human experience, where every human person is also a different human being. So Bentley and I, we're two different people. But we're also two different beings. We don't share the same heart. We don't share the same lungs. We don't share the same brain. We are different people and different beings. But to quote Rangrudam here, somehow God's being is so much greater than ours that within his one undivided being, there can be an unfolding into interpersonal relationships so that there can be three distinct persons. God is one undivided beings, but yet within that one being, there are three persons who relate to one another as different persons, as you and I. Church, I don't pretend to comprehend that, okay? I don't. But it's a clear testimony of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is a real and a genuine person. But even as a person, that begs the question, or the questions. What exactly does the Holy Spirit do? What is his role? What is his function? What is his purpose as a person in the triune Godhead? Well, I think G.I. Packer, in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, is helpful on these questions. And I'll be referencing and quoting from him at several points this morning. You see, I, I think a certain fuzziness surrounds not only who the Spirit is, but this very question here. What does he do? What is his essence? What is his core purpose? Well, after reading the book of Acts, you may answer that question and say, I think I know. The Holy Spirit, he's all about power. Yeah, Acts 1.8. Wonderful words, right? But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Who doesn't need more power? Who doesn't want more power? Yes, power to be a husband, to be a father, to be a mother, to be a child, to live the Christian life. We need power. Thus, the Holy Spirit can become all about power. But, I suggest to you, this is not what the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is essentially about. For others of us, especially those from a charismatic or a Pentecostal background, man, the Holy Spirit, he's all about the spiritual gifts. In fact, when you read or maybe heard that I'd be speaking of the Holy Spirit, perhaps your mind just beelined right there to the spiritual gifts, baby. Not just any gifts. You know, spectacular gifts. Yeah, the tongues, prophecy, and healing, right? So the Holy Spirit becomes about learning to how to operate and to get these gifts, so to speak. Well, church, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are grace to the church. I desire the gifts. And I do believe all the gifts we see in Scripture do continue today. We need the gifts. But I don't believe that is what the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is essentially about. For others, you say, it's obvious, Corey. It's obvious. 
The essence of the Holy Spirit is holiness. Got it? Holy Spirit. Holy is an adjective describing the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit is described, I believe, in Scripture as the Holy Spirit 94 times. Right, the Holy Spirit is who we have in our lives to help us battle sin. Right? To mortify the flesh. The Holy Spirit, excuse me, is all about sanctification. It's about being made holy. All that, too, is absolutely true. But we're still missing something. In other words, we're still missing someone. So what is the essence of the heart of the Spirit's ministry today? It's not power, not performance, not purity. Are you ready? It's Christ. It's Christ's presence. Church, the Holy Spirit, is a real and genuine person. And he has come that you may personally know and experience the presence of the glory of the risen Christ. He's a person. And yes, the Holy Spirit is an abiding presence in every believer's life. That brings to point B, an abiding presence. I think two scriptures help establish this point. They're found in Christ's farewell address to his disciples. We read of Christ promising and reassuring words. In John chapter 14, I'm going to start there with verse 16 to John 14. We read these words of Christ. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Another helper. Who's the first helper? Christ. Another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. I believe he's equating helper and spirit of truth, one and the same. Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So who is this helper, this other helper, also called the spirit of truth? Or rather, what is this helper to do? Well, we read in John chapter 16, same farewell address that Christ is giving before his ascension. John 16, 14, and 15. Speaking of the Spirit, this helper. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, all that is Christ, all that is the risen Christ, all his glory, all of who he is and what he's done, and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In other words, this helper will help by executing the Father's mission of glorifying Christ, remember Ephesians 1, of summing up all things in Christ and making known the truth about who Jesus is. In such a way, in such a way to make Christ glorious in our eyes, to make us see the glory of the finished work on the cross, to make us see the glory that Christ is now the risen, ruling, and reigning King, and to make our union with Him 
and his presence with us, a conscious reality in our minds, in our hearts. The Holy Spirit's central task or role is to make known the personal presence of the risen, reigning Savior to us as believers. Or to use a fancier term, his role is to mediate Christ's presence to us, to mediate his presence, his word, and his ministry to us. Do you remember the opening sermon on the book of Acts? It was this, that Jesus continues to do and to teach. Even now, the risen Lord Savior is continuing to do and to teach. Well, how is the risen and exalted Lord who is in heaven continuing to do and teach among us today? He's continuing to teach and to do through his Holy Spirit and his living word. So putting it all together, the Holy Spirit reveals Christ and his glory to his church, assuring us that we belong to the risen Christ. That's that matchmaking ministry right there. Enabling us to have fellowship with the risen Christ and empowering us to carry out the mission of the risen Christ. Understand this, and I believe you'll understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you'll be able to better discern his ministry a little more clearly. But I do want to be clear on this. This doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is Jesus. They're two distinct persons. That somehow Jesus became a spirit when he disappeared and ascended into heaven. No. Neither does this mean that Jesus is physically with us. Jesus is currently reigning in heaven, fully clothed in humanity in his glorified body, awaiting to return physically to this earth. But we've been given his spirit. Jesus is now with us, not physically, not spatially, but relationally. He is with us. in such a way that Christ could say these words authoritatively. Before he left and ascended to heaven, he said these words. It's called the Great Commission, found in Matthew 28. I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And listen to this next sentence. And behold... I am with you always, always to the end of the age. How is the risen Jesus with me today? As we live in the already and not yet, between his first and second comings, he's with us by his spirit, by the very Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. So my heart, my burden this morning is that you and I may live with an awareness that Jesus not only exists out there in heaven, oh, he does, but he's also here with us, relationally, 
that we can commune and fellowship and know him. To give you an illustration, our family enjoys visiting Everglades National Park, at least in the wintertime, when the bugs are at least at a minimum. Whenever we do so, we make a point to stop by the really iconic fruit stand that is on the road to the entrance to Everglades National Park in Homestead. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've been there. The fruit stand is called Robert is Here. Robert is Here. A rather bold name or claim. So I thought I would test it out. I know that wasn't original thought. Come on, if you're going to name a fruit stand, Robert is Here, okay? It just begs the question, doesn't it? Oh, it begs it. So one day, Cindy and I, we asked an employee of the Robert is Here fruit stand. Hey, is Robert here? And lo and behold, he was. And he came over to meet us and to interact with us. And every time I go to that fruit stand, you know what? I look for him. You know what? He's always there. I don't want to disappoint you if you go there, he's not there. But my experience, he's always there. Robert is always there. Amazing. Robert is here. He really is. Do you live with the knowledge that Christ is not only real and alive, but his presence is here today in such a way that you can have personal fellowship with him, that he is actively, powerfully animating you and transforming you into his likeness, that he is empowering you to carry forth his very mission of making disciples, that he is at work assuring you that you have been adopted by him and brought into the Father's family. Do you believe it? Or do you view Jesus as I initially viewed Robert? You see, I initially viewed Robert as, well, the founder and namesake of the fruit stand. But I didn't really expect to find him there at least not down on the floor, working the cash registers and interacting with people. Friends, Jesus isn't merely the founder and namesake of Christianity, somehow removed from the day in and day out operations of your life. By the Spirit, he is here working in your life, wanting fellowship with you and wanting to show you his glory. And wanting you to know that you are not alone. But it's so easy to forget, isn't it? So easy to lose sight of Christ and the Spirit's activity in our daily lives. Especially if all you're looking for is the, quote, wind and fire and tongues of Pentecost. Which we'll read about next week. Especially if all you're looking for is the spectacular gifts. Church, I'm not against the miraculous gifts, signs and wonders. Bring them on. But that's not all that I'm looking for, okay? To validate, to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit and to experience Him. Oh, there's more. So much more. See, I propose to you 
I know we're not there yet, but as we get to Acts 2, Pentecost, but the glory of Pentecost wasn't just the manifestation of the Spirit, which sounded like a strong wind, which looked like tongues of fire, and resulted in various unknown or untaught languages being spoken. That was awesome. That was significant. And we don't want to belittle that. We're going to explain that more next week. But I also would argue that that was unique in a number of ways. Oh, but the glory promise, the kind of glory I'm talking about, the glory of John 16, 14, where we read that he, that the Spirit will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you, that glory was at Pentecost. And it was found in Peter and the recipients of his message. That's the glory that they got. I'm speaking about the glory of the Son, Jesus, that was working in Peter. We're going to read about it next week. The same Peter who denied Christ three times only days before. We're going to read his empowered, bolden, anointed sermon. I'm speaking of the glory of Christ that filled Peter's gaze and enabled him to proclaim the resurrected Christ to all those who were gathered at the Pentecost feast. I'm speaking of the glory of Christ that caused the recipients of Peter's sermon to be cut to the heart and to say, brothers, what shall we do? I'm speaking of the glory manifested when 3,000 people responded to the message and were added to the church. That's the glory of Christ. Oh, church. And the glory of Christ is now ours too this out of Pentecost. It's for every single person who has repented of their sins and placed their saving trust and faith in the crucified and now risen Jesus Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a reality for every believer at the point of conversion. That is our Pentecost, so to speak. It may not be accompanied by wind, fire, or speaking in tongues, but it's nonetheless real. We have been given the Holy Spirit, Christ's abiding presence and glory revealed to us. Do you see him? Do you see him? You may be surprised where you find him. Yes, working in the fruit stands or even up in the football stands, to use an an analogy. You see, I played football my freshman year in college. It was a challenge, to say the least. The athletes were much faster than high school, much stronger, and they were a lot older, too. Add to that a losing season and a debilitating ankle injury. It was a pretty much miserable first year. Yes, the going was tough. What was a night game? The weather was, I mean, it was horrendous. And I was on the sidelines. I was with 50 other teammates. But that evening, I really did feel alone. My parents, they lived eight hours away by car in Northern California. 
My dad worked pretty close to the college, but during the, weekday, during, during the weekdays, on the weekends, he would commute back home to Northern California. I had assumed that night that my dad had already flown home to be with mom. Well, during the game, I don't know what prompted me. Well, I do know what prompted me. The Holy Spirit prompted me to look up in the stands during the game. I'll never forget who I saw, how I felt at that moment. It was my dad. He's here, dad, and I wrote these words to him when I got married as a tribute to my father. Dad, your support for me has been enduring. I still get teary-eyed when I think about that cold, dreary evening my freshman year in college. I was standing on the sidelines of the football field. Our team was getting whipped in the torrential downpour of rain. I glanced up, and I saw you there, alone. Alone in the stands, cheering us and me on. You must have been shivering, but your spirit was not dampened. Tears uncontrollably ran down my cheek and face mask, blurring my vision and silencing the game around me. But I did not care. That night after the ball game, I knew you had to make the lonely eight-hour drive back home. I did not play a single down that game, but you had come to see me. I will never forget that. I was not alone. Maybe you're here right now. You're wondering, where is God? Maybe he's gone home too. Well, at least Christ has. He's gone to heaven. And frankly, you say, I don't blame him leaving this earth. But church, Christ has not left us as orphans. We have received his Holy Spirit. And he's prompting you to look into the stands and see Christ and see the glories of his sacrifice for you. But Christ isn't just seated in the stands. He's on the sidelines. He's in the game. He's in the sidelines wherever you are at. And he's dwelling within you by his spirit. And he wants you to know that you belong to him. You are his son. There's things he wants to show you, to speak to you, to do in you that are glorious. But just don't look for the glory in the wind, in the fire, or tongues. Look for his glory. Look for his presence in the everyday, not just the fire, but in the rain as well. Are you looking? Are you looking? Are you listening? Are you experiencing the Holy Spirit? That leads to point two. Not only knowing or understanding the Holy Spirit and his work, but experiencing the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I ask that you would keep that clock quiet, Lord, right now. (laughs) By the power of your spirit, yes, that your word would go forth without distraction right now. And Lord, help us, yes, to focus right now in your strength, I pray. Amen.
Experience the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge the Holy Spirit. Just to start it off with, I think consciously experiencing the Holy Spirit begins with acknowledging His presence and your need for power. To bring His presence into our consciousness. Yes, even into our speech. I say that not because the Holy Spirit right now is suffering. The Holy Spirit does not have a self-esteem problem. Just got to give him a few props, okay? You know? Keep him happy. Many authors have talked about what's called the divine selflessness of the Holy Spirit. How he exists to shine a light on Jesus, not his own work and ministry. But I think we can focus our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, work in his leading, even by the speech that we use. In our family of churches and acquaintances, the focus on the gospel in our study, in our language, in our speech, I think it's been encouraging. We speak a lot about the gospel, don't we? We use that term a lot, the gospel. But as pastor and blogger Trevin Wax notes, we, we often hear such talk as this. Our obedience is fueled by the gospel, right? The gospel is what motivates our obedience. Or we need to be captured again by the gospel, and so on and so on. These statements aren't necessarily incorrect, but I think Trevin Wax is on to something when he says, quote, the more I hear this kind of talk, the more I'm convinced that we are using the word gospel where we really mean the Holy Spirit. We often talk about the gospel doing stuff when actually it's the Spirit who is working. The point isn't to quibble here. The Holy Spirit uses instruments or means. He uses the Word of God to change us. But the point is this. I think we can unthinkingly use gospel language to imply or to suggest that the Christian life is merely a continual reflection on a set of propositions, right? I got to preach the gospel to myself, okay? I got to be gospel-centered. Yes, we do, okay? Yes and amen. But in doing so, church, let us not lose the personal connection of the Holy Spirit, and to quote, quote this Trevin Wax one more time, and miss the intimacy that God wants with us, his people, and the power God intended us to have. See, let's acknowledge, let's express our need for the Holy Spirit to be truly gospel-centered people. In fact, may I suggest this. If we want to be truly gospel-centered people, I believe we need to be biblically spirit-centered people as well. For it's the spirit who reveals Christ and empowers us for Christ's very mission. But acknowledging isn't enough, is it? Acknowledging our need for the Holy Spirit and his work isn't enough in and of itself. We must follow him. To borrow a phrase from the famous Welsh revival of, at the turn of the last century, 
honor the Holy Spirit. Yes, we must acknowledge A, but we must also honor the Holy Spirit. What do I mean? What does it mean to honor the Holy Spirit? I like J.I. Packer's definition. Believers honor the Holy Spirit when they give him his way in their lives and when his ministry of exalting Christ and convincing of sin goes on unhindered and unquenched. Honoring the Spirit. Honoring the Holy Spirit is about giving him his way. You know what? He has a way, and he has a will. Do you know that we can resist the Holy Spirit? It's what the Jews did when they accused. It's what, excuse me, Stephen accused the Jews of doing right before they stoned him in the book of Acts. You may recount Stephen's wonderful sermon. I heard it referred to as how not to make friends and influence people. (laughs) It is brutal, okay? They resisted. They didn't resist Stephen. They resisted the Holy Spirit who was addressing them through the Spirit-inspired word that was preached to them. And you know what? We can do the same as well. We can resist. You can resist even right now as I'm preaching. Did you know also that we can quench the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, by resisting, by undervaluing, by ignoring his work, even his convicting work in our lives. Church, please don't hinder, please don't quench the Holy Spirit. Yield to his influence. Allow him his way in exalting Christ and convincing of sin as he conforms you more and more into his image. Please don't harden your heart. Each minute, each day, the Holy Spirit is casting his light on Christ in our lives so that we can know his presence, his preeminence, his power, and his purifying work. That that would be a conscious reality to us. Church, are we living by this light? Are we responding to him? How? By acting and obeying. You are making choices every single day to live either by the desires of the flesh or by the desires of the Spirit who desires to make much of Christ. We read in Galatians 5, 16 and 17 these words. But I say, walk by the Spirit. We could say, honor the Holy Spirit. Let's use biblical language. Walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Now, I know that you know that your flesh has desires, it has cravings, it has urgings. Right? Yes. But did you know that the Holy Spirit within you also has desires as well? See, the implication here in this passage is that the Holy Spirit leads us through his desires. The word for desires here comes, refers to, in the words of Wayne Grudem, 
to strong human desires, not simply intellectual decisions. No, real human desires. These desires are produced in us by the Holy Spirit and are pitted against our fleshly desires. In other words, God fights desires with desires. He fights fleshly desires with the desires of the Spirit, which He's producing in you. And I believe the primary means by which the Holy Spirit produces these desires and strengthens them in us is by illuminating God's word and revealing Christ and his glory to us. So that begs the question, are you spending time praying and meditating on God's word? Time praying and meditating on the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you interact with the living, dynamic word of God, the Holy Spirit is producing in you desires that move us and change us, that we would want to worship and be here this morning, that we want to obey and choose righteousness. Church, what are you doing with those desires? Are you acting upon the desires of the Spirit within you? Or are you suppressing them? Are you dismissing them? When you feel that check in your spirit, so to speak, that tinge of guilt, what do you do? Do you just, you know, ignore it, hoping it'll kind of go away? Rationalizing that, you know, I'm just way too sensitive. Just, I'm just overreacting here. You know what? If you ignore it, those desires will go away or be muted. It's called a hardened heart. It's called a seared conscience. When you feel a prompting to do a good work, to step out in faith, maybe it's to pray for someone specifically. Maybe it's to go talk to a person, to seek to share the gospel with them. Or go talk to that friend and seek to bring a gospel application to their lives to encourage them. What do you do at that moment? Do you dismiss the thought? Must have been that proverbial pizza I ate last night. That was just one of those random thoughts that I have. Yeah, that, 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 was, that was just me. Friends, stop giving yourself so much credit. That was just me. Another idea. Stop giving into the flesh. Could it be, could it be that the Spirit is leading you at that moment to demonstrate and to proclaim the gospel and thus exalt Christ? After all, it's his very ministry, is it not? Or for others, say, hey, just had an idea, you know, how I could serve that person in my community group. Oh, you know what? On Wednesday, we were talking about community groups and getting out into a larger community, and I just, just had an idea. And then you think, it's just me, just, just made sense to me, no big deal. 
as if God doesn't use your reasoning or your desires or your gifts to build up the church. Where do you think those desires came from? Those desires for righteousness, to do good. The flesh? The enemy of your soul? If you have any inclination to confess your sin, to do good and to bless, where do you think the desires came from? Just your natural desires? No. I'm not saying your desires can't be tainted. They can, but I'm not going to build every bridge here, okay? I think you know what I'm talking about, all right? That we can too easily dismiss the leading of the Holy Spirit thinking we're alone in this. Christ is present, working through desires and giftings to accomplish his mission. As we act on the Spirit's desires, informed by God's word and fueled by his Spirit, you know what? God meets us. He meets us, working synergistically, big word, in cooperation with us, all right? In partnership with us to battle the flesh and to do God's will. You know what else he does? What else does he do? He gives us power. Yes, Christ's power. Pentecost has come. The waiting for the Spirit is over. You don't need to wait for the Holy Spirit to be zapped. Just zap me, Lord, with your power on high, and then I will go in victory to do your will. No, obey him. Act on the righteous desires he's producing in you and through you, which he's leading you through and in. See, the Holy Spirit isn't some generator that we just plug into when the power is out. Fill me up and zap me up, Lord. No, but so often how we can think, isn't it? I can fall prey to that. I certainly can and have. No, as we act on these desires and step forth in faith and obey... He meets us. He fills us with what? With power, with wisdom, with words, and gifts to execute Christ's mission and to bring him glory. Over and over again in the book of Acts, we are told that individuals were filled with the Holy Spirit. But you know what? We weren't told how they were filled. We're not even told that they asked to be filled per se. No, the Spirit fills them, to quote one theologian, Graham Cole, as they set their hearts on doing the will of God and call upon him for the enablement to do so. I love the words that are recorded in Acts 4. We're going to get there in a few weeks, but it's a prayer. But I've got to go there now, just a little glimpse. I want you to leave you with it. It's a prayer of people who knew that they weren't alone. Oh, they were being threatened. They were being opposed for their faith. You could say it was raining big time. But the glory of Christ filled their gaze. And setting their hearts to do his will, they called out to him, knowing they weren't alone. And so they prayed. Just listen to this prayer, Acts four twenty nine and 31. And now, Lord, look upon their threats 
and grant to your servants to continue to speak, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Isn't that great? Church, let's gather Wednesday night, our churchwide prayer meeting. Let's come together weak and needy. But let's come together knowing, oh, we aren't alone. Let's let the Spirit stir our hearts to carry out Christ's mission with boldness and with Christ-likeness. And may we be filled. Church, we're not alone. Let's go live like it. Band, can you come on up this time? Let's conclude with a prayer, then a song. Well, Lord, thank you that I believe you are ministering to us right now. The living, the risen, the ascended Christ, you are ministering to us even now by your Holy Spirit, which is our spirit, which testifies to you. Lord, thank you that you have not left us alone to walk this walk, but you have given us your spirit. May we know even now that you are here, that you are relationally present, that we are not alone. And may we praise you and rejoice as we sing now and as we go out those doors. Impress this truth even now upon those who are still struggling to understand or to believe. Would you impress upon this now of your faithfulness, of your promise, of your Holy Spirit? that they would know right now as we sing that as a believer in Christ, they have not ever been alone, that they are not alone, and that you will see them, you are with them to the end, I pray. Amen. Let us rise and let us sing.